Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. For God has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, that through these he has given to us many magnificent and precious promises, that through these we might share in the and be partakers of the nature of God, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Before we open God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful that we have this time that we can think about you and reflect upon your goodness, your grace, your love for us, and above all that you have given us a free gift of salvation. It is without cost to us. It is free to us that we can have this gift of eternal life and the assurance and confidence that because of what Christ did on the cross, we are saved eternally. The only condition is that we trust in him and him alone. Father, we thank you that as we have gone through this uh, Trinitarian passage in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, that we have come to a greater understanding of the roles of each member of the Trinity and help us to understand that which we study this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles with me again to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And today we're going to focus on this last verse related to God the Father. The three verses that we've been focusing on are verses 4, 5, and 6. Verse 4 focuses on the ministries of God the Holy Spirit, verse 5 on God the Son, and verse 6 on God the Father. Verse 4 says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. It is the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, to be involved in that calling, which is to help us to understand the truth of the gospel, even though we are spiritually dead. In verse 5, talking about the Lord, he is one Lord. Last week we focused on what it means, one faith, that although there are those who claim that this one faith is the, the body of doctrine that we believe, um, that does not seem to be the best way to understand that for later on in the passage that we are to uh, grow as we grow and unto the the uh, understanding of our faith and so that is they're talking about that body of doctrine but here it is talking about the fact that scripture says that and is consistent that we are saved by grace through faith that in the old testament the object of faith was the promised messiah that he was not yet here, but he was coming, and that when he came, he would justify many, and that would be by faith alone in the Messiah alone. But in the New Testament, he has come. He has fulfilled, as we have seen, over a hundred different prophecies throughout the Old Testament given over a period of 1,500 years or more. And that in these prophecies, we are reminded that in the Old Testament, the condition for being a prophet was that everything that you said would come true to the minutest detail, and if not, then you would be executed a capital punishment for being a false prophet. And so all of these prophecies have come true, and we examined about 12 of them Uh, which give us great confidence that it would be virtually impossible for anybody to come along and fulfill those 12, but there's over a 100 that were fulfilled by Christ in the first coming. And so that is no accident. It is the uh, intention and the plan of God. And then we haven't yet looked at this. We've looked at it in detail about seven and eight weeks ago, the one baptism, baptism, 
which is the baptism by the Holy Spirit. That is the one baptism. And some people you read will say, well, this one baptism is the baptism by water, ritual baptism. And in one sense, it's really both because the baptism by the Holy Spirit is what is pictured in the ritual of believers' baptism. So they are connected to one another. The one, the ritual, is to teach and explain what happens when we are baptized by the Holy Spirit, which is not an experience. It's not something we feel. Uh, We don't get um, any kind of a lift or healing or anything else that comes when that happens. It is a legal uh, transaction that occurs in heaven when we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection and become a new creature in Christ. And it is not it is not experiential, but it happens at the instant of salvation. So we're going to review this just a little bit this morning to um, help you sort of bring this together, what we taught, and then we'll come back and cover the sixth verse dealing with one God and Father of all who is above all and through all. And actually the text reads, in us all, not in you all or some of your uh, translations in the uh, NIV, uh, ESV, NASB just say in all. But the majority text says in us all, which is different from the received text, which is the basis, which was only 8, 9, 10, 11, depending on what year you're talking about in the in the 16th century, uh, is the Textus Receptus, which is what the King James was based on. They weren't they weren't the older documents. They were more recent um, manuscripts, and they were not of the best quality. So, the key verse, the central verse for understanding the significance of the baptism by the Holy Spirit for this church age is in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by means of one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Now, one of the things to note here is that this idea of the baptism by the Holy Spirit, of course, fits perfectly with the general argument of the Apostle Paul in the first three chapters. Remember chapter 2, he spends uh, half of the chapter from verse 11 down to verse 22 talking about the fact that the uh, that this division that occurred under the Old Testament law, under the Mosaic law, this ritual distinction between Jew and Gentile was abolished at the cross. The law was... Uh, ended at that point because of Christ's death on the cross so that he in his, by his death on the cross would bring together Jew and Gentile in one new body, one new household, uh, one new temple, that this is, this is this new body of Christ which came into existence on the day of Pentecost described in Acts chapter 2. And so that's the emphasis in that, that Paul is really making here. And if we think about the context here of chapter 4, which is what, uh, which grows out of that, when Paul says in verse 4, or starting in verse 4, he uses the, the word one seven times. He's talking about this now oneness or unity between Jew and Gentile. There's not two bodies a Jewish body and a Gentile body. Uh, There's not two different callings, two different hopes. There's not two different lords, two different faiths, two different baptisms, uh, two different gods. It's all one now for Jew and Gentile both. And so there's one body and one spirit. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. So basically what we have seen is that at the time that we believe that Christ died on the cross for our sins, there are some eternal realities that take place. 
This is called in some places positional truth. And uh, it is the idea that it, the instant that we trust in Christ, there are certain things that are certain transactions that take place in heaven related to our legal position before God. So that when God looks at us, part of that legal position is that we are justified. That doesn't mean that we are sinless or that we become less sinful. It means that we have received the imputation of Christ's righteousness so that when God looks at us, he looks at us as righteous, not by our righteousness, but by Christ's righteousness. And so this is our new legal identity in Christ is that we are uh, declared just by God on the basis of the reception of Christ's righteousness. Another thing that happens is this baptism by the Holy Spirit because as Romans 6, 3 and following says, we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. There are also temporal realities in relation to the Holy Spirit because we are going to be filled by means of the Spirit as we walk by the Spirit. And this has to do with our day-to-day fellowship. But that's not the focus here. The focus here in baptism is our identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So I defined it this way. The baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. You remember I spent a lot of time talking about the grammar here, that in every passage it uses the same grammatical construction in the Greek, and it doesn't, it's not baptism of the Spirit. It's not baptism with the Spirit. It is baptism by means of the Spirit. And it is the work of Christ because in all the passages where the one who performs the baptism is mentioned, it is always Jesus. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming down to the Jordan, John the Baptist said there, he said, I baptize you by means of water unto repentance, but the one who comes after me will baptize you by means of the Spirit and by means of fire. So those are parallel statements which really help us to understand uh, what is going on here. So we're baptized by means of the Spirit, Matthew 3.11, 1 Corinthians 12.13. So we look at this phrase, baptism of the Spirit. It's never expressed in the Greek. You never have a genitive form of pneuma, so that's just inaccurate. But it's used a lot. I've used it. Others have used it. It's, it kind of fits in an English idiom, but it's never used that way in the, in the Greek. In the English, we also see the phrase baptism with the Spirit in some translations, in some verses. In other verses in the same translation, it will say baptism in the Spirit. And in other verses, it will translate it baptism by the Spirit because the different translators will just choose the way they they think it should be translated. But they all represent the exact same phrase in the Greek. So it should be translated the same way every single time we see it. Now, the one verse that I think helps us understand all this grammar is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2. And the reason is, is this isn't talking about ritual baptism. It's not a passage. It talks about baptism by the Spirit. It's not talking about water baptism. It's talking about the baptism related to Moses. And in that, we see how the grammar all works together. This is really becomes your, your, your primary verse for understanding how the grammar works. The verse itself says, and all were baptized. So who's baptized? The all. Who's that referring to? It's referring to all of the Israelites who are coming out of Egypt and blocked by the Red Sea and they and then God is going to miraculously part the Red Sea and they will cross on dry land. And this is called a baptism. The people that got wet were not the Israelites. The people who got wet were the Egyptian soldiers and charioteers who drowned afterwards. 
So this gets us away from thinking in terms of who gets wet and getting baptized, because a lot of times you'll hear some people say, well, baptism, uh, when John says we were, uh, he baptized in water, that they think that's like the English in or in two, but it's not. And we see that here because we have uh, the, the word here, there we go, into is translated with a Greek preposition, eighth, which is indicating the new state. Okay, we'll co- I'll come back to that in a minute. And, but the means, that's what we're really concerned with because in those gospel passages, it's always expressed that Christ will baptize in pneumaty. Pneuma is the word for spirit. In, E-N in the Greek, should be not understood as into, but by means of. It could be location, but I'll show you here why location is excluded. It wouldn't make sense in this passage. When it says all were baptized into Moses, that has to be a legal thing because they're not, you can't squeeze three million people into Moses. Just won't work. Not even with multiple personality disorder. But it's by it's in the cloud and in the sea. Well, they didn't go into the cloud, neither did they go into the sea. So we understand from this this depiction that the in in the Greek doesn't talk about location because nobody on none of the Israelites got wet. None of them got, went into the Red Sea. None of them went into the cloud. So it's best to understand that as as by means of the cloud. So God uses the cloud, which represents his person leading the people uh, out of Egypt, and the sea, which is the means he used to redeem them, to rescue them. So let's look at the whole context here. Matthew 10.1, I mean, 1 Corinthians 10.1 says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers, referring to the Israelites coming out of Egypt, were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. This is a message on prepositions. I'm sorry about that. It says they were under the cloud, not inside of the cloud. Now, how are they under the cloud? Because God is leading them by a pillar of a cloud and a pillar of fire. So that is above them. And they passed through the sea, not into the sea. And that is seen in Exodus 13, 21 and 22, which describes the event by Moses writing this, describes the event and says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud, to lead the way. So he's, he's elevated because everybody's got to see which way to go. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from above the people. So that's what Paul's describing in 10.1. They were under the cloud and they passed through the sea It's not in the sea. None of them got wet. And so that phrase in, with the preposition in, does not mean into. It means by means of. All were baptized into Moses. That's the legal position. In or by means of the cloud and by means of the sea. So this helps us understand the baptism by the Holy Spirit that at the instant that we trust in Christ as Savior, we are baptized by who? Christ. He's the one who does the baptism. So when we read in verse 5 of Ephesians 4, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, it's that one baptism that is uh, performed by Christ using God the Holy Spirit as the instrument to affect the cleansing and the identification with Christ in his death, burial, and, and resurrection. So at that point, we understand that the water baptism 
is the physical representation of that so that as we are identified at salvation by the Holy Spirit in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, so too when we are go through ritual baptism and we are immersed in the water, that that is a picture of death, and then we come out of the water, that is, a, and, and in the water is a picture of burial, and coming out of the water is a picture of resurrection. So we're identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which is what the baptism by the Holy Spirit is. So the ritual depicts the reality of the baptism by the Holy Spirit. So those are connected, and that's the one, that's the one baptism. Now we come to verse 6. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in us all. Now when we look at this verse in the Greek, the way that it is structured grammatically, there we go again, is that there's a one in front of the word theos. Now in Greek, in English, God is a definite noun right? It's a proper name, so it's a definite noun. But in Greek, it's not a definite noun. It's an indefinite noun. So for it to be definite, it would have to have either a an article in front of it, or a lot of times, if it's got a numeral in front of it, then that replaces the definite article, because one God makes the noun definite, specific. It's not a God, it's one God the God. So one God and Father. So you have two nouns, God and Father, neither of which is a proper name, and they are connected by this conjunction, junction, and you all remember that from Sesame Street, okay? So you've got two nouns connected by the conjunction and governed by this one uh, numeral one, which functions as an article, and this fits under a grammatical rule in in Greek called the Granville Sharp rule, that they are linked as the describing the same person. They're not synonyms, but they're describing the same person. We'll get a more detailed study of this when we get down. Uh, a little later into uh, verses 10 and 11 where we have pastor and teacher, same rule. And so it's we translate that as pastor hyphen teacher because they're both talking about the same individual. And so here we have a clear statement of the deity of the Father and that God the Father as a distinct person in the triune God has the role of Father. The second person of the Trinity we have seen has the role of the Son. And the third person of the Trinity is not described in a a functional sense, Father or Son. He is described by the term Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. Each has a distinct role. Now, to understand what is meant by one God we have to address the issue, well, is this talking about a strict monotheism or something else? A strict monotheism would be what you find in Islam, that Allah is one singular entity. He does not exist in a plurality of persons with an indivisible unity. And the problem with a strict monotheism, you have the same thing in the Unitarian heresy that, that came off of Christianity in the uh, early 1700s, is that if God is love, there has to be an object of love. In other words, for God to be a loving God, there has to be someone to love. And if God doesn't have anyone to love and he's just a singular person, then he has to create someone to love, which means he's dependent upon his creature. Now, that violates the definition or understanding of a God. A God should be self-sufficient and independent, and a God who is dependent upon his creature in order to have an object to love is not, not much of a God. 
And this is a problem that you have in Islam with Allah. And one of the reasons why Allah is never described in the Quran as a God of love. You don't have that. You have only about four references to uh, the word, the noun for love in the Quran. And I think almost all of them have to do with if you love something. Okay, they're not talking about the divine nature. So we have a God who is a, a singular, he's singular in his essence, but he's plural in his persons, and we can't grasp that because it is beyond our comprehension that he is, has this intimate unity that is displayed in three distinct persons. And, and in the early church, they had to deal with these various attempts to explain the Trinity. One was called modalism. And I think a lot of Christians that haven't been taught very well have sort of a modalistic idea of God. And it comes from the idea that God would appear in different modes. It was a, the term in the Greek had to do with putting on masks in, in, on, the, on the stage in drama. And so in the Old Testament, he puts on the mask of the God of Israel. And uh, when Jesus comes, he puts on the mask of the Son. And when you get into the church, he changes the mask again. And now he, he's the Holy Spirit. They're not three distinct persons at the same time. They are one in nature and one in person. And that person just reveals himself in three different modes. That's heresy. As I said before, and I love the illustration, when God sings a solo, he sings in three-part harmony. There's three voices there, three distinct voices, but there is one nature, a strict unity. In the Old Testament, there's an important verse in Deuteronomy 6.4 that is a foundational or central verse for modern Judaism. Not so much in a biblical Judaism, but in modern Judaism. And the way they have historically translated this is to emphasize that God is a singularity, a singular deity. Uh, they have a strict monotheism, not unlike Allah. But as we've seen in many, many passages, especially in Isaiah, there's at least four passages in Isaiah where the one speaking is divine, and he talks about sending his servant and the spirit. So you have all three members of the Trinity encapsulated within one verse. So there was clearly a plurality uh, in the Godhead understood in the Old Testament. Now, it's interesting that in New King James Version, as well as in older Jewish translations, the way they translate verse 4 is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And they, it, it sounds like it's talking about a Unitarian monotheism. But that's not what you have. What you have is what's translated in the Jewish Publication Society Trans, mod, more modern translation of the Tanakh. The, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. And I just find that fascin fascinating that the rabbis who translated this are coming to grips with the fact that the context of Deuteronomy 6 isn't talking about uh, God existing in a singularity but that it is in contrast to the multiple gods in the polytheistic worship of the Canaanites surrounding them. And that this is an affirmation that the Lord our God is the only God. He is the God alone, that these other deities that other religions worship are not God at all. And um, and this is the way this Hebrew word is used. For example, it's the same word used in, in Genesis chapter 2 at the end when uh, God has created Eve and brought Adam and Eve together. And he says uh, that for this reason a man shall leave father and mother and the two shall become one flesh. 
It's a unity of two persons, okay? And that's the concept of echad, the Hebrew word there. So it's important to understand uh, this emphasis that, that what's coming out of the New Testament is the same thing that was in the Old Testament. They're not changing the concept of God. What happened is after the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, uh, it, Judaism is just in a shambles. The Sadducees have been basically destroyed because they were the real liberals. They have nothing to hang their hat on. And the other groups are pretty much decimated. The only group that has any sort of of ability to reorganize are the conservatives, uh, which are the Pharisees. And so Pharisaical rabbis gather together in a place called Yamnia, which is south of te- what is south of what is now Tel Aviv. And there they put together how they were going to worship. They recodified restructured Judaism because how in the world are you going to have Judaism if you don't have a temple? How are you, what are you going to do about all these festival days when you're commanded to go to Jerusalem and worship at the temple if there's no temple? How are you going to have your day of atonement and have sacrifices at the temple if there's no temple? What are we going to do? So they basically redefine Judaism and they see their arch enemy as, as Christians now And so they have to restructure their view of God so that it would exclude a, you know, a second or third person of the Trinity, which is obviously part of Christianity. So they reinterpret Deuteronomy 6.4 into a strict monotheism. And so we come to our passage when it says that there's one God and Father of all. We have to understand what this means in terms of God as our Father. There's some fascinating verses uh, about this. The term Father is used numerous times in the Gospels, when Jesus, mostly when Jesus is talking. Matthew has the heaviest concentration and Mark the least concentration. No, I think, I'll take that back. I think John has the heaviest concentration and then Matthew and then Luke and Mark, not so much. But from the lips of Jesus, he's constantly talking about his Father in heaven. He says, my Father in heaven, my heavenly Father. And, of course, he's doing that partly distinguish him from his earthly adopted father, who was Joseph, but to focus for his disciples that when they ask him how to pray in what is uh, mistakenly called the Lord's Prayer, which, which is really the disciples' prayer, he says, we pray our Father uh, who art in heaven. And so that focal point there helps us to understand that when we pray, we are to pray to the Father. Now, some people would say, well, you know, Jesus isn't going to say, him, give himself as the point of address, but there are other places in the Gospels where he says, when you pray to the Father... And then when you get into the epistles, there's a number of places where we are told, for example, give thanks to the Father. We're never told to give thanks to the Son or to the Holy Spirit. We're never told to pray to the Son or to the Holy Spirit. All of the prayers are directed to God the the Father. Why? Because the role of the Son, Jesus Christ, is our high priest. And a high priest is the one who would... Uh, symbolically bring the prayers of the people uh, before the throne of God. And so Jesus is pictured as our high priest and our intercessor. Well, you don't pray to the high priest. You pray to the Father. The high priest is just the intermediary who is interceding for you. The Holy Spirit is also called our intercessor. And in Romans 8, we're told that if we really don't know how to pray or what to pray for and we make mistakes when we pray, that God the Holy Spirit sort of cleans it up and translates it and puts it in the right order. So if we don't know how to pray as we ought, the Holy Spirit makes it clear. And for that, we're we're grateful. But we don't pray to the intercessor. We pray to the Father, and the intercessor is the one who helps and strengthens our prayers. So it is important to understand the focal point there in terms of God, the Father. Uh, Why is that? Well, that's another thing that you observe. And last night I read through every passage in the New Testament related to God the Father. 
And what you see in, the, in, in Jesus, in all of his statements related to the Father, is this consistent drumbeat that the Father is the boss. He's the sovereign. He is submitted to the will of the Father. And the Father is the one who sent him. Again and again, he says, the Father sent me. So you see this picture that there is an authority structure uh, within the Godhead. And that's not because the Father is more divine than the Son, but that you always have to have a role so you don't have people trying to get in competition with each other as to who's going to, who's the boss. So there is an authority structure, but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal to one another. We have a mistaken conception in our culture that if someone is not the boss and they are the employee, that they're not quite as good as the boss. But that's not biblical. And it really gets uh, distorted when you come to marriage and you come to the role of women in a marriage and men in a marriage that why should the man be the head? The woman can do it just as well as the man. No argument there. What about in the church and having women as pastors? Some women can teach better than men. No argument there. I've heard some brilliant women uh, teaching in a women's Bible study that are absolutely outstanding. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says there are role distinctions not because women are less than men, less competent or less able or less, uh, or they're missing something in their essence. It is because God has established a certain uh, structure, and it's to reflect things in the Godhead. There's a structure in the Godhead. It doesn't mean that the Son is less God than the Father or the Holy Spirit is less God than the Son or the Holy Spirit. And so we are simply to uh, uh, focus on the fact that we are to understand that authority doesn't have anything to do with one's ability or one's inability, but God's plan. That just like on a football team, uh, the somebody on the line can be a much better athlete than the quarterback, but the quarterback is the one who's in charge. He's the one who calls the plays. Now, I know there's some teams where the coach calls the plays, but you understand what I'm saying. The, the, the different roles, whether you're a running back, whether you're a quarterback, whether you're a center, whether you're uh, a tackle or guard, are, you have just different roles so that you can function together as a team. And so that's true for marriage. It's true in the Godhead. It's true for every single entity that we have in, in, um, in, in our human sphere. So we are to follow that kind of authority pattern as, as God has set it out. Now, the next thing that we see and that we want to focus on here is, in, is the second term that is used, and that is that he is one God and Father of all. Well, what does that mean that he is the Father of all? Now, there are some that are going to say, see, this is a classic passage. God is the universal Father of every human being. Really? Now, there are a couple of places people go to in Scripture where the concept of God as Father is related to the idea that God is the creator of all. So in that very restricted sense, he's the Father of all. But the only verse that you can really go to for this is in Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Okay. Who is the, it says there, why do we deal treacherously with one another? Who, who's the one another? Jews. They're having a problem within Israel, and this is getting to the heart of that problem. And so when it says, have we not all one father, who's the we? It's Jews. It's not talking about all human beings. It's talking about Israel. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Yes, God created the Jewish nation through his covenant with Abraham. And so that would include believer and unbeliever. But it's got to be understood within that narrow context because it doesn't include any Gentiles at all. 
So this is a very narrow concept, and it's not talking about this other sense that we have when we get into Scripture. In the New Testament, in John 1.12, we read, but as many as received him. Now, the contrast is with the verse before in verse 11, which says that Jesus came to his own, but his own, that is Israel, received him not. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the power or the authority or the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. So how do you become a child of God? You trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, and at that point you're adopted into God's family. Now this did not happen in the Old Testament, but this is distinctive to the church in the present church age. And in Romans 8, 15, and 16, we are told, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage, that is, at salvation, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. I think this verse is not very well understood by a lot of people. The context that what he's focusing on here is prayer. Now, the word Abba is the Hebrew word that is, would be equivalent to our word Daddy. It's not the more formal father, it's informal, and it is express, expressing more of an intimacy with the father. And that because we are now in the family, we have that closer, more intimate relationship with the father. And in verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So God is only the father of those who have believed in Christ. Now, we have another passage uh, in the scripture that is also important for us to understand, and that is a passage in John chapter 8, where we have the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are talking about, oh, how great it is that I have, that we are of our father Abraham. And Jesus corrected him and them and said, no, you're of your father, the devil. So that tells you that at least some segment of the human race does not have God as their father. They have Satan, the father of lies, as their father. And that would be those who are unbelievers. In Galatians 3, 26 to 28, now this is an important passage because it also connects back to what I described at the beginning, the baptism by the Spirit. And Paul says, for you are all sons of God. This is not a sexist phrase. The term sons of God is a term that it was related to uh, Roman law at the time, and it is the sons who have the uh, who have the inheritance among the uh, among the children, the adult sons, and that's been the argument in this section. You are all, whether you're male or female, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So, how do you become a child of God? Faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. So there's that unity again. But in Judaism, if you were a non-Jewish female slave, you couldn't get very close to God in the temple. Only the high priest could go into the holy place and the holy of holies. Uh, the other priest could go into the holy place for the bread and, the, and lighting the candles, but only the high priest could go all the way to the holy of holies uh, once a year. And you couldn't even get inside the entry uh, to the temple proper, uh, the, uh, the uh, hiras, if you were a female or if you were Gentile. There were markers out in the courtyard that women could go no further, men, uh, uh, non-Jews could go no further on penalty of death. So what, what Paul is saying here is in the baptism by the Spirit, these racial, economic, and um, uh, sexual distinctions are not relevant to our relationship to God. 
That doesn't mean they aren't relevant to role distinctions that God has established for the family and for society. Galatians 4, 4, and 5 says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. How do you do that? By faith in Christ. Now, a parallel passage to the Ephesians 4, 4 through 6 is in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, where Paul says, Yet for us there is one God. It's the same word, hase. It looks like that preposition that I was talking about earlier. It has the same three consonants, but it has a rough breathing mark and not a smooth breathing mark, which is why you put the H at the beginning, so it's a different word. There is one God, the Father of whom are all things. Uh, There's one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. So you have the Father of whom are from whom are all things. This is talking about God the Father is the ultimate in the order of creation. He is the overseer, the designer, the architect of creation. But God the Son is the one through whom he works. That's why he says, through whom are all things and through whom we live. And in other passages in Colossians, it talks about the fact that it is through Christ that all things are created. God the Father is the architect. God the Son is the uh, general contractor. And I guess you could say the God the Holy Spirit's the worker bee who does it all. Okay, there's these role distinctions between the three. And then when it comes to the end of our verse here in Ephesians chapter 4, 6, it says, He is the Father of all. Now, we've seen that the of all there only refers to believers. He's not of all. So you have to understand the word all in this, the rest of the passage to refer to only believers. He's the Father of all who is over all. He's the sovereign over all believers. He's the sovereign over the church. That's the point. The the, the reason I'm making this point is in the Greek, the word translated all is uh, in a form that is the same whether it's a nominative or whether it's a, um, I mean, excuse me, whether it is a masculine or whether it is neuter. So you have to make a decision as to which one it is based on the context And since the all relates to persons at the beginning, the all in the other two uses, or three uses, has to be understood as in relation to person and not in relation to things. If it was neuter, it would be in relation to things. Because it's masculine, it's related to persons. But father, he's the father of all believers, so that tells us it's it's restricted to persons who is over all, and the context we're talking about here is in Christ. And so he is the ultimate authority. He is the sovereign over all the body of Christ. And through all believers, he is the one who is working through all believers, and he is in all. Now, to clarify this, and if you have a King James Version or New King James Version, it will say, in you all. If you have a New American Standard ESV, NIV, or any of the other ones that are based on the view that the oldest documents are always the best and most accurate, which I think has several fallacies, uh, it doesn't have either you or us. It just has what uh, through and in all, which is I'm looking at New American Standard here. But in the majority text... Now, the Textus Receptus, those eight or 11 manuscripts that were used as a basis for the King James translation, uh, those weren't the best within that large group of majority, vast majority of Greek manuscripts all have in us all. Paul is talking about the fact that the Father indwells every believer. Now, you'll find a lot of people who'll say, well, the Father indwells through the Holy Spirit, but there are distinct passages for example, in John fourteen twenty three, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we, the two of us, will come to him and make our home with him, our abode with him. 
This is talking about not just the indwelling of the Father and the Spirit, I mean the Father and the Son, but the intimacy in the walk with the Father and the Son, but they indwell every believer. In John seventeen twenty six, Jesus, in praying to the Father, said, I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them and what? I in them. So Christ indwells every believer. And, of course, 1 Corinthians three sixteen and 6, 19 both state that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. So all three members of the Trinity indwell every single believer. And when we're walking in by the Spirit, then there is a greater intimacy there with God in that concept of fellowship. So we close out this section of these first six verses with this emphasis on the Trinity, the role of the Spirit, the role of the Son, and the role of the Father, who is the one who is our authority and the one who works in us. We'll come back next time, and you better fasten your seatbelts. There's so much great stuff in this next section, and it's based on a lot of things from the Old Testament, so we've got to go back and forth, and it's a lot of fun. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, study your word, to come to understand more about you, our Father, and your sovereignty over all of the universe, but including the body of Christ, and that you indwell us as well as the Son and the Spirit. And Father, we pray that if there's anyone listening online, anyone here that has never trusted in Christ as Savior, that the gospel, the good news would be very clear, that we are saved not by anything we do, not on the basis of our nationality, not on the basis of any uh, achievements on our part or any special morality that we might have, but we're all saved the same way by trusting Jesus Christ as Savior because he said he is the only way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. Father, we pray that you would make that clear to all who listen. For those of us who are believers, may we have our faith more and more confirmed as we study the scriptures, understanding what it means, and understanding all that you have provided for us. As Paul says in the beginning of Ephesians, you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And we thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen.